Hi, my name is Leighton Cassidy, and I am one half of this year's Columbia Journal podcast team. In December of 2019, former journal staff Emma and Shelby got to sit down with poet and publisher Joe Pan. Joe Pan is the author of five poetry collections and co-editor of the Brooklyn Poets Anthology. His work has appeared in such publications as the Boston Review, Hyperallergic, the New York Times, and the Philadelphia Review of Books. Joe Pan is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of Brooklyn Arts Press, an independent publishing house honored in 2016 with a National Book Award in Poetry for Daniel Borzatsky for the performance of Becoming Human. He is also the publisher of Augury Books, whose book and more black by Ty Freedom Ford won the 2020 Lambda Literary Award in Lesbian Poetry. He came on the podcast to promote his new book of poetry, Operating Systems. A brother returns. Maybe because I've had some minor heart surgery and you're back in prison and all the books I send you from Amazon keep getting returned because violence isn't tolerated in literary form, at least in the venerated penal system of the upper territories of Florida. But I felt the need to write not about loss, but losing, the incessant, inescapable truth of our lives. I just read a story by Stephen King imitating Carver, and it's a pretty good story. And I think of all the friends over the years who shared with me their hatred for genre and for books in general. And I hate books and writers too at times, the whole lineage, the entire concept of the written word and the accumulation of histories for self-glorification or entertainment or mere truth of evidence the lie we tell ourselves of learning from previous mistakes. When you and I both know we learn best by living out regret and utter self-deflating repetition, dry docking our hopes to pills or some other tangible replacement of the tangible. I wonder what the poor woman who woke to find you bleeding on her couch, window smashed, high on oxy, thought you were there to do and figure probably kill her dead. Instead, you wanted money to buy more drugs and be gone from the horror of yourself, away from that person holding a woman's arm as she dialed 911. I wonder if you're glad she swung at you. I wonder why you didn't bleed out in the parking lot of the hospital, or why you didn't just wait at her house for the cops to come pick you up. I think it's because you believed escape was possible. Not that you'd beat the rap or disappear into a phantom car headed up I-95 into the bluing morning, or be captured and let off by some errant mistake made by a rookie cop, but that by trotting those miles bleeding in the dark, you'd find some aspect of yourself you'd been searching for all along, that suddenly, like the idea for a story, it would just occur. I think we're approaching some final project, a place to drop a stone, Not to mark out territory, but signal a center. Here I stand. I'd like to believe your project has something to do with grace and healing and redemption. But I I know it has more to do with grinding your faith into flour and scraping some part of you off the fender of everyone you love. And self-hating and forgiving your way into a place of relative comfort and peace of mind about the little time you'll feel you'll have left on the outside. And I'll be here hating myself in ways I hope I can keep from you enough to share in some happiness as brothers. 
hoping you don't fuck up and go back at age 42. The age you will be when you get out. The age I am as I write this. I hope our better wills break ourselves into something more living than mourned. They say it will take three months for my heart to scar over and heal. When I stand up to walk, I still feel the rhythm try to give way and collapse me. That was poet Jill Pan, the subject of Columbia Journal's latest podcast. I'm Emma, the 2019-2020 online poetry editor for the Columbia Journal. While my time with the journal has ended, former online fiction editor Shalvi and I are leaving you with an inside look at what it takes to make it in indie publishing. We recorded audio in December and were joined by Rad, the incoming editor-in-chief of the Columbia Journal. Okay, uh, well, starting the press. Uh, the press started in 20, uh, 2007, mm-hmm. actually, um, with my own book. Uh, I started the press with self-publication. Mm-hmm. What happened was I had graduated from Iowa in 2002. I had a manuscript. I'd, I was sending it out for four years. And it got close with a couple prizes with like Yale and the, and the let's see, National Book Award and, and the Walt Whitman Award. So I felt like it, it was doing pretty well, but a lot of those awards, they award uh, one book, right? So people yeah. are paying 25 bucks, they, 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 they choose one book and they publish it. So, and at that time, there weren't as many small presses around. So I decided to start my own small press with my first book. And there have been a good history of poets starting their own presses, right, and publishing their own work. So I didn't feel too bad about it. At the time, it was frowned upon. It still is to some degree, but uh, much more then, you know, which was odd because, like, at the same time, my friends who were um, modern dancers, my, my girlfriend at the time was a modern dancer, and they were starting their own companies, right? And, they, you know, and, 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 and filmmakers that I knew were starting their own production companies. Like, yeah, there's this, like, very weird discrepancy between, like, it's like there's still this like, let's not do self-publishing. Well, I always, yeah. yeah, there there yeah. is, and I, I always thought really highly of art collectives. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I just had this kind of DIY punk attitude. I mean, I made my own zine when I was like fifteen, you know, and I I had started off writing when I was seventeen, eighteen. I was uh, I was uh, interviewing bands. I was going around Florida interviewing bands for Eight Nineteen, and then later in North Carolina at this place called Juice. And a lot of those magazines were just people going out and, and starting things themselves. So that was really, that was kind of in my blood. So I, I, I also decided, one of the things I realized was by starting my own press and printing my own books, uh, first of all, I had no idea how to do this. Um, I started asking around and some small press people were very generous with their time. So when I did, when I did start, I, I, one of the things I knew I was going to be able to do was send books to writers um, that I liked, that I admired. I would just have the books. I didn't have to pay half for half off the retail price to get a certain amount of books and then send them off. I had all the books. I could do it all myself. I mean, I didn't know if it was going to be ugly or if it wasn't going to work. I didn't know how to pitch to librarians or anyone else. But there was there, you know, there was something exciting about about this. So I did, and I was able to send off the books to writers I really liked and receive some wonderful comments. I got like a letter from Don DeLillo and like. Um, some some prominent poets uh, wrote me back and tell me how much they enjoyed the book, and that that blew my mind. It was it was really incredible. And also one of the things that I 
that I saw was happening was I, I knew a lot of other people that were getting close on these contests and I knew some people who um, I had gone, uh, I was in workshop with mm -hmm. that whose poetry I admired. And so I approached some of them mm -hmm. and um, was, so I, I had a good amount of people that I could publish if, if they wanted to publish with a, a smaller press, which again, at the time there were smaller presses that were, but they weren't in the same number as they, as they grew to be. Within think, like the 2010 to 2012. What even caused this explosion of small press? Digital printing. I'll be honest, right. like digital right. printing changed everything to me. And uh, there are many, many reasons to hate Amazon, but at one point, uh, Create Space with yes. Amazon actually helped a lot of us flourish. They had a pretty informative newsletter coming out every month. And yeah. I was this teenager in high school okay. looking through it because I've been writing since, I mean, all of us who love writing have been writing since. I guess we were taught how to write. Yeah. And um, when I first started writing, I had no avenue in my little city in India of mm -hmm. what to do, where to go yeah. with anything that I'd ever written. Um, and I didn't trust um, storyboard platforms that well. So okay. I signed up for Amazon's Create Space newsletters, and then I learned a bit about self-publishing. Never ended up actually self-publishing anything because I had the opportunity to talk to industry professionals um, back home and they advised me against it as a very first um, sort of uh, sure. putting yourself out there kind of thing <laughs> but um, I do know that they've, they've made a lot of um, independent artists uh, happy with that. Sure, I mean there are disadvantages, I'll, I'll be honest, especially for fiction apparently because people want to publish debut novels um, they will throw a lot of money at that and they're looking for debut novelists uh, specifically so that and if they see that you have uh, self-published that might be a tick against you and that is just it's the honest true. truth of yeah. it's true um, in terms of poetry I mean poetry is less limited uh, mm -hmm. in, in these ways uh, by the kind of bureaucracy I mean poets don't get paid as much and by the kind of commercial aspect of it yeah. we're more free in certain aspects in certain ways to uh, to just branch out and do whatever we want yeah. and there's a lot of smaller presses that are almost specifically like poetry presses mm -hmm. and will pick up just interesting voices and we can put out because of digital printing uh we started putting out 250 books this is this is in the earlier days um we were able to put out 250 books whereas before a uh, basic offset printer would want a thousand copies of each book now a thousand copies for somebody that doesn't have five thousand um, dollars we couldn't do it mm -hmm. now 250 books that we could put out for $800. That was a game changer. Mm -hmm. The problem was a lot of times was with the um, the covers. The covers, they didn't, because these were new printers, this was a new digital sphere. Like they were trying to catch up. They're trying to figure out all these printers. Like how do we make money off of these, oh, these, this, this, uh, these, this boom of like small printers that are coming up. And so they were just trying to get orders in and push them out as quickly as possible. They weren't they didn't necessarily have the devices. They didn't necessarily have the, the printing, the, the printers that could make uh, really great covers. So you would have a lot of off wash. You'd have a lot of covers that didn't really look very good. Um, and so in the very beginning, a lot of people just didn't want to use them because it didn't look good. Mm -hmm. The thing was, you could jump between, a, there were a lot of digital printers to choose from, and I actually went through 200 different digital printers. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. no, I sat down, I sat down with uh, a friend of mine who was an artist uh, and art director, and we, we went through, we looked at, we, we sent people the same PDF file and had them make the books, manufacture them, and send copies to us to see what it would look like. And we found some of the printers that uh, were cheap and did good jobs. Mm -hmm. And so from, that dovetailed straight into a time when um, I had come on board with a uh, small um, 
gallery called Go North. Mm-hmm. And I, that was founded by Greg, Slip, Greg Slick and um, Carlos Carcamo. And this is up in Beacon, New York. And they took me on as a partner. And I started, uh, I was living in Williamsburg. I started uh, uh, going to visit a lot of different artists in their studios and realized that I wasn't going to just publish poetry books. I wanted to do fiction and, and art books, art monographs, and anything that I could get my hands on because I felt very free. You know, Brooklyn was just really erupting in this way artistically. Mm-hmm. I was surrounded, I mean, oh, one of my first contacts here was Krog Barton that, that runs Hyperallergic. Mm-hmm. Um, we connected, we lived in the same neighborhood, and it just felt like things were really blowing up artistically here. And we could do whatever we wanted. We could literally do whatever we wanted. We, I could publish whoever I wanted because now I had a cheaper way to publish it. Um, and you had the authority to, to, to pull voices that you liked into the, into the mix. Right? Yeah, and it felt like anybody really kind of had that authority. Like, I wasn't a gatekeeper in any sense of the no, word, word no. at the beginning. Although but if I you will, have an eye for it, and if you're good at it, then it's a good idea to bring these Well, voices. you're surrounded by a lot of potential. There's just people making anything they want, and, and, and um, drawing from different backgrounds and different cultures and different aesthetics and different perspectives, and it was all right here. And all I really had to do was like walk from one studio to the next in order to pull people up to go north and give them shows if I wanted to, or read their work or go and listen to their uh, listen to them at the boom of reading series, which paralleled the boom of small presses rising up in Brooklyn. And so there were all suddenly there were these all these poets and all these writers in the same place making incredible work. And all I had to do was go listen and kind of pick which ones I, I wanted to and approach them. Like, I know the literary market right now tends to be a very crowded pl- place for yeah. better or worse. And I was wondering, how do you really stand out as both a writer and a publisher to get to draw people in? And, like, both as writers and also, like, when you're applying for grants. Yeah, so we don't apply for grants because we're not a nonprofit. And, and the reason we're not a nonprofit, I think, is because uh, I didn't want anybody looking over my shoulder in the same way. I just never liked that. I knew somebody that had a nonprofit and their board kicked them out of the nonprofit, and that sure. terrified me. And I, I mean, I learned about that when I was like 25. I was like, okay, I'm never doing that. That's rare. It doesn't really happen. I think non you know, nonprofits do tend to get more money, but I did not want that to happen. I just wanted complete uh, creative control and artistic control. Well, I can tell you at the very beginning, you find people around you, right? You find people that you know, and you and and you have your friends. And I think publishing your friends at the beginning is absolutely essential, imperative. You find people that you know, and you run with it. Um, and you know them, and you can work together well, hopefully. Uh, but after a while, and it happened with Brooklyn Arts Press when I opened up submissions in one year for a month, we received 800 submissions. Wow. And 800 submissions is a lot. And I read every single one of them, at least part. I've read, uh, I, I, I looked, I, I did the math one year, and I think it was 37,000 pages that I read one year. And it was just, that's just that's a lot it's of a reading. Lot. <laughs> and I also realized that uh, we were, the submissions that were coming in were somewhat skewed, right? It was something like 80% white people that were writing oh. and sending in. And I, I said, okay, so. We're not really reaching into communities that I that I want to get to too. So, you can go and find resources. Kundamon, Kaveh Kanam, Canto Mundo. It's not enough to. Uh, you need to seek out potential audiences and authors. You can't really wait for people to come to you. So, uh, one of the great things was going on the Kaveh Kanam site, and they actually have the list of fellows 
with writing samples. You can go and you can read through and see what people are putting out there um, and contact them. At the same time that this was happening, I also started working um, as the first um, poetry editor for Hyperallergic. And so I was also looking for people submitting uh, poems for that, working as an editor for that. Yeah. So I was able to kind of like do cross jobs there. I was able to go and find a lot of different poets to publish on uh, to publish once a, once a month there, and look for potential people that had like you know book length manuscripts yeah. that they may be uh, um, willing to send me. I really like the process of like so, um, just talking as the po online poetry editor of the Columbia Journal. Mm -hmm. I really like the process of like soliciting poets mm -hmm. and like researching new poets. Um, I'm recently published. Callie Siskel, over the summer I read her collection, Arctic Revival, and I almost cried during reading, I was like, I have to have her on it. So it just feels really, really great to have, like... Isn't it like, wonderful yeah, finding it new poets yeah. and just finding new voices? Yeah. Um, and wanting to share it with yeah. people? That was one of the great things, is I would read somebody and be like, oh my gosh, like, mm -hmm. who is this person? Yeah. Where is this voice coming from? Mm -hmm. And just discovering and going down the rabbit hole of their of their yeah. work. Mm -hmm. And then finding people that they've been published with, or groups yeah. that they're part of, mm -hmm. and the sometimes smaller communities that you just kind of like, uh, discover for yourself yeah. and want to share it with the world. You know, if, if you're resourceful and you bring a lot of joy to your job too, sometimes you don't even have to solicit. I mean, this is the thing, yeah. people just start sending you a lot of work. And sometimes you're really, um, I mean, staggering some of the uh, some of the mm -hmm. submissions that you and the amount of submissions you get, but also really uh, wonderful that sometimes uh, people that you do not expect to submit to you, mm -hmm. like John Ashbery submitted poems to me, and oh. that felt bizarre. Oh, yeah. I, was wow. just, I remember looking in my <laughs> inbox, and I think a friend actually like, he was reading through Hyperallergic, like, oh, I love Hyperallergic and I love the different poetry, and just and I opened it up and I thought it was a joke, and I was like, <laughs> I don't believe John Ashbery submitted poetry. I don't know. It just felt like an audition tape that he definitely did not need to take part in, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, no. I mean, That's some famous amazing. poets started sending me work, uh, and. And uh, it was it was great, and then I got extremely busy again, and uh, handed it. I felt like I needed to hand uh, hand the mantle off to someone else, and hand it off to Wendy Shue, and she's been doing a wonderful job of that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us your reaction when you found out about the National Book Award? Sure. Um, I must. It must have been a struggle to get through it. I mean, I know publishing houses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, run campaigns for this kind of award. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was. Um, First of all, it's completely unexpected. I'll, I can tell you, I'll, I'll try to keep it under 10 minutes, but the 10, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do 10 minutes. So it was the middle of, let's see, I, I think I put out Daniel's book and uh, I think it came out in April uh, of uh, 2016. And at that point, the next month it was, I was putting out Anna used to do plans book, um, Take the Stallion, which is just an they're, incredible book. They're teaching at Columbia next year. Yeah, 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 yeah. They've been teaching there for a bit, uh, and uh, just in, just an incredible writer and a good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that book was coming out that I was really excited about. Daniel's book, that book, I was we were putting out the first novel was by uh, The Ugly by Alexander Boldazar. Mm -hmm. I had Matt Shears's book coming out in December, along with um, um, sorry, let me think. It was uh, Deborah Kwan. Uh, Deborah Kwan's uh, Lunch Portraits were coming out. So it was a really busy year. 
already. Um, and I'm doing this my, just by myself, right? I do hire people occasionally to do some editorial work or to build out the interior of books or something like that or create covers. I now, I used to do all the covers myself for years, but then I was just like, no, we need like professionals. And I found some really great professionals that worked for me at uh, lesser rates because they just really loved what we were about. So that's great. And so I have a kind of stable of people that I, I go back to that help me out because mm -hmm. of what, because we both, we, we all believe in, in, in small presses and um, what we're doing. But, um, so Dana's book came out, we did a print run of 250 copies, which is the kind of baseline. And if it sells out for 250 copies, then we go into another print run of 250 copies. If it starts selling really well, sometimes we'll go up to 500 on the next run. Uh, Daniel's did. Daniel was doing fairly well. You know, it was it was selling copies here and there. I mean, one of the things about small presses is trying to find uh, or trying to get it in the hands of librarians. We do not have reps like a lot of the, the bigger publishing houses. Uh, we have to get extremely creative with some guerrilla marketing um, and come up with stuff. Like I came up with like uh, we did the Radiohead uh, 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 route, which was like uh, sell things for free, ask people yeah. what they want to pay for it. Except that we tried something I don't think anybody had tried before, which was with Noah Eli Gordon's book, which was basically like, um, we are going to make the books, mm -hmm. and instead of getting a digital copy, you can pay whatever you want for a hard copy. And some people paid uh, one cent, and those are terrible humans. But <laughs> they did. But some people paid twenty-five dollars for a copy. Well, those are amazing. generous yeah. humans. So I mean, basically, you couldn't get mad about it because this was yeah. this was what you signed up for. Yeah. But we would have to do all of these things. So we, I was getting super creative. I had just finished. I spent two months of my life, and literally every day, editing uh, and re-editing. Um, this book, uh, Alexander Baldazar is the Ugly, because it is a monster book, and it's. It's very funny, and it takes place in two different times in Russia and at uh, and in uh, Harvard Law School, and it is exceptionally uh, difficult in, in places. So that just took up a lot of my time, and so we didn't expect any of this. This was not a small press. We have an operating budget under twenty thousand dollars or twenty five thousand dollars that year, and it was uh, just not expected. And what happened was they don't tell you until five minutes before they announced it on a New Yorker site that this is happening. So I was literally, I opened up my laptop. Um, my wife was, was there, she was, Wendy was kissing me goodbye. Mm -hmm. I opened it up and this thing popped up from the New Yorker National Book Award. I opened it up and it said, literally at like, I think it was nine or 10 o'clock, I forgot which time, but it said, um, we're going to be announcing that this, your book is a long list. Oh, and wow. I shut the I shut the gear, <laughs> and my heart rate flew to some crazy number, and I started like stuttering to Wendy to not leave. Aww. And she came over, she's like, "What's wrong?" And I opened it up, and she read it, and she was like, "Oh my god!" And so we freaked out, and I had to call my friend uh, Dana, who was a yoga instructor down the block. And Dana, I was like, "Dana, will you come and just sit with me because I'm freaking out right now." And my phone started it. ringing, and like emails started coming, and I was like, "Oh my gosh." So I was like, okay, okay, I don't know how to handle this. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we, this is a one person operation for the most part. And um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And she stayed with me while I called small press distribution, this guy, uh, Brent Cunningham, who works there. Uh, and I called him and he was like, congratulations. You know, he's, he's our distributor. He's going to be distributing his books. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, how many books am I supposed to be making right now? And he's like, I have no idea. This hasn't happened really. So I was like, okay, great. So he's, it hasn't happened for them. Um, so I was like, okay, um, well, who should I call? Who who do we know has been a, you know, a long listed for the National Book Award? Uh, so he gave me some names of people to, to talk to. And so what I did, uh, it was great. I talked to 
Joseph Bednarik uh, from Copper Canyon and uh, Fiona McRae from Grey Wolf. They gave me, you know, wow. they gave me some minutes, a few minutes to kind of like speak with them and just talk to them about what it was like. And uh, both of them were, were really great and um, letting me know. Um, Joe had, uh, he was warning me about something that had happened to him uh, with the Ruth Stone book when they had, when, when, when Ruth's book had won uh, the National Book Award. Was, they didn't have enough copies on hand. Mm -hmm. And you basically have about three weeks before the kind of like glimmer and shine of it all goes away and people move on to something else in the mm -hmm. book world. So you kind of have to strike while the iron's hot. Uh, I did not expect that we were going to get past that initial long list, truthfully. Mm -hmm. um, it's, gosh, the people that we were up against, that the book was up against were just in, 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 uh, incredible, incredible uh, writers uh, with great books. Um, so we, um, what I did was, after talking to them, I saw some bumps in sales. It wasn't enough to really warrant a big, uh, a big run. So I think we did, we either did 500 or 1,000 copies immediately. Um, and we did, that was, I'm not sure if that time was print on demand. We might have gone with Mendot and Gun, who is our printer, where we're not doing print on demands. Uh, we might have just gone with them. And their lead time is about like this, like three or four weeks before they start, before the books are made and like shipped to the outlets uh, and shipped to our distributor. So we were waiting between that time and the next announcement, which was the shortlist. Now things bump up with the shortlist. Like people start paying attention. Long list people are like, oh, congratulations like, uh, to, these, to these writers. Like this is a good thing for your careers, blah, blah, blah. But like there was definitely, there was definitely a difference between making a long list and short list. And all of this, it went nuts. I was doing everything myself and I was, people were, there were some people calling me to see, like, congratulate here and there, but honestly, it was, I'll just be honest about this, it was a little bit um, uh, lonely. It was a very lonely period because uh, I felt that I had to do everything and do everything for all these other writers that, that I was responsible for, as well as for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, it felt like, because uh, there were so many presses, and uh, having this happen was extremely lucky and very fortunate, and I knew that. Um, so there was just a lot to do. There was, there was a lot in terms of marketing and all of these decisions that go into the regular small, the, the regular small press um, schedule. And suddenly I just had to amp it up and ramp it up a little more. I recently, oh sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I recently went to a talk um, with some Grey Wolf editors mm -hmm. um, at a public space. And one of the things I, I remember them saying, if I remember correctly, is like, they kind of expanded out their editorial staff, but they didn't want it to get too big because it would lose that personal touch. Have you mm -hmm. ever thought about um, expanding out your own editorial team or possibly hiring marketers? Or do you want to keep it more of like a very distinct identity as an editor? Well, that's interesting. And I'll try to dovetail it back a little bit to finish up the uh, National Book Award conversation. But yes, I have tried different editors before. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, the um, Brock Russell was the initial editor for the performance of Becoming Human. So he uh, and Daniel worked together and really reshaped that book and what it is now. Um, so yes, I have worked with other editors. Um, we don't really have the funds, to be quite honest. Like, the, all the money that the books make goes back into Brooklyn Arts Press, into Augury Books. Yeah, I don't you don't really, take a salary. No, I don't take a salary. I, I, I couldn't take a salary. I mean, we're just too small. I mean, so mm -hmm. what we have to do is find incredible books and try to market them as best we can, you know, and again, do this guerrilla marketing or whatever comes to mind. And we ask the authors, like, what do you want to do for this? What do you think you can do for this? Because 
writers, especially small press writers now, are their own marketers in large ways. And actually more and more common, I know a lot of fiction writers publishing with big houses and they're their own marketing team as well, to be, to be honest. Um, so basically, just to kind of finish this up, what happened is we, they announced the, the, national, uh, the, the shortlist for the National Book Award. Um, I was sitting in bed and I didn't want to watch it, but my wife made me turn on the computer. And, and when they announced their name, she started screaming and I was like, oh my God. And then again, like that's when like, I think in their post and everybody else started kind of calling and I was like, oh my God. While this happened, I, um, hold on. So many things were happening. So I had just, I, I got a concussion. I was at a bar. I missed this step oh walking God. down. I, I hit my head against yeah. the wall. Oh. One of my pupils got bigger than the other, so I thought maybe I had brain damage. At this point, I started having headaches every single day. Oh. Um, and suddenly, I had to ramp up everything. I purchased a sticker from the National uh, from the National Book Awards for the long list. I had to buy another sticker. They were extremely kind about things. They, uh, It's expensive to win a big award. I will just tell you that. I will tell you at the end of the day that I spent between fifteen and eighteen thousand dollars on this. Wow. Um, normally for that year, I'm, the budget is like twenty. Mm -hmm. I was doing this for one book, and that was like flying Daniel different places, mm -hmm. um, buying the the seats at the tables at the National mm -hmm. Book Awards. But they were really kind. They um, they let me have a lot of that stuff uh, for a lot cheaper um, than some of the big uh, publishing houses were paying, just because we. I told them we just couldn't afford it. We needed financial aid, <laughs> yeah. and, and they were they were very Aww. kind. And Lisa Lucas and them were very kind people. But um, so many things were happening. Uh, the concussion, and then once it ramped up, we had to buy the new uh, seals to put on these things. We had to get them on the all the covers, all the stickers. Yeah, yeah. yeah because you do the, you do it digitally, and then you actually have you buy the printed versions, which mm -hmm. are just lovely, right? And then you have to figure out where to stick them. And then you had I think we had, had a month. Postcards, oh my God. Posters for the table. Exactly. All of this was happening, yeah. and then also getting Daniel different places and having him field phone calls. And at that point, I hired a publicist. Like I called somebody, uh, and I was like, uh, I'm not sure if I should even share who it was, <laughs> but I called the publicist and, and I said, Listen, we have a National Book Award winner. You don't have to try to win the National Book Award with them. You just have to say that this, or the National Book Award, uh, sorry, uh, finalist, like, can you just help us with this? And she came on and she was exceptionally good. And then I started making plans for what happens if he wins. And that was very weird. And I couldn't believe that that was actually happening. We had to, we had to prepare, we had to get everything ready. Um, and then what happened was, you know, we show up, at, you don't know, you show up at the award ceremony. Um, and dressed in tuxes and I brought my crew of people that were friends and like, but I felt, you know, you just feel out of place. It's downtown Cipriani. It's very fancy. And then all of these, you know, um, all of these literati and social elites and are there. And what are know. they doing on Wall Street? Yeah. And, and, and it was really, it, it was really lovely. fantastic. <laughs> right. And uh, Daniel's family was there and uh, it was lovely. And no matter what happened, like we had made it out of our, uh, out of our, out of our house, out of our apartment. And what's really funny was when Daniel got there, um, there was a person checking him in and she's like, Oh, you're the, you're the person whose book was made out of somebody's apartment. Yeah. Out of the like, like kitchen or something. And he was like, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. And during his acceptance, acceptance speech, because as soon as, well, first of all, like I will tell you something that I, that I didn't tell very many people. This is what happened. I was sitting, you're, you're sitting around this table and, um, they were announcing, um, the winners, right? 
And when I, I was sitting there and it was Joy Hargrove and she was reading the list, uh, she was she was reading uh, the list of people who were fellow nominees um, were Rita Dove for yes. her collected poems. Yeah. Um, Peter Gezi yeah. for Archaeophonics. Mm -hmm. um, Joy Jay Hoppler for the abridged history of rainfall from McSweeney's. Then Somaz Sharif's um, Somaz uh, Sharif. Yeah. yeah. Look so and from Grey Wolf. Yeah, Samal so, Sharif's book. That was the, I mean, honestly, that was the one that we thought was probably going to win. Samal's is a wonderful person, yeah. and uh, that book is super powerful. Yeah. Um, so we were up against all this, but when Joy was reading um, from a sheet of paper, and they had all of these screens around so you could see, so, so the people far distant, we were all the way in the back corner, so we could barely see them, mm -hmm. um, but they had a giant screen behind Daniel's head. So Daniel, at this point, is freaking out. He's <laughs> bent over. He's like, oh my gosh. Um, and uh, Rachel Galvin, his girlfriend, was just there, like, you know, rubbing on. And like, I was, I was like, I was super nervous too. And I looked up, and on the back of the sheet of paper, I just saw Becoming Human. And for like... 10 seconds, I felt like I knew before everyone else that he had won. And I looked over at Daniel and I just yeah. felt this like extreme like pride and love. Aww. And I just started tearing up and I was like, man, your life is gonna change. Like your entire life is going to change right now. And I looked around at all of these people and I looked at his parents and I looked at my friends and I was like, this is fantastic. What a fantastic thing. And I just knew before anybody else, yeah. right? Except the people on stage, I just knew what was going to happen. And I watched him. And when they announced his name, we all just jumped up right. and freaked out. And the entire place felt like it was behind us because we were just this incredibly small press right. um, that had just won this huge award. And I couldn't believe it. And I just want to mention one other thing because I left him out, but I didn't mean to. But like, um, I spoke to Joshua Maria Wilkinson, who uh, published uh, Fred Moten's The Field Trio, and he runs Letter Machine Editions. And it's another small press that was a finalist, that had a book that was a finalist for the National Book Award. And he was a wonderful person to talk to because it was just, we were just people mm -hmm. that have been running these things, you know, these, um, these small presses built out of love and not much else, right? And we had no direction and we had no money and just putting these things out there, like many, many small presses that are doing the same thing. And um, we just got really lucky with these amazing books. Um, so it was really just to add that in, like he really helped a lot. And after, after he, after, um, Daniel won, I would talk to him about what to do next because as soon as he won, I had, this is true. I had, about 10 minutes of actual joy in my life there where I was looking around and I was looking at his family and mm -hmm. I was looking at him and Rachel and my and Wendy and my friends that were there uh -huh. and I was like wow this is incredible this is incredible and I got up out of my seat and like after the hugs and everything and I walked out back because I just couldn't deal with it right. and I walked through a kitchen and I walked out a back door and I was in an alley, and uh, like you know, in the financial district, just kind of like <laughs> in the cold, just kind of sucking it in. Right. And I told myself just just enjoy this for a second, and I did, and I just enjoyed it for a second, and then the realization of being the person that ran the small press kicked in, and I was like, I will not have a life for the next two months. Mm. Like I know what I have, and then all of that started invading me. It was just like you have to call. 
your printer. You have to you have to create a new design tonight. You have to do this and do this. You're not going to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I also you have a concussion. And also like you have to like there's no you you can't stop. And I turned to the side, and there was uh, the nonfiction fiction writer Alexander Che walked by. Oh yeah, he's And I was so like, I so want to talk to that guy. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. And I, and I just watched him walk by. And I don't know what it is, but I've seen him just kind of walk around in my yeah. life in, mm -hmm. in various places where I spot him in the distance. <laughs> right. I don't know what it is, but he was there as part of it and part of that memory. And I guess he was just there for the party. And I came back, uh, I came back in and suddenly it just turned again to the, the responsibility of business, of mm -hmm. being a small press owner again. And I was just a small press owner again. I was a poet. I was a friend. But at that, that moment, I just became a small press person again. And I had to kind of get back on the job. And I enjoyed a couple drinks. And I enjoyed the time. But I went home and I immediately started working. And I didn't stop working for three months. Wow. I mean, and I also had to get other people's books out at the same time. I was answering questions, uh, doing interviews, setting up um, readings for, for Daniel. I mean, and he was setting up readings. And it just... It just becomes, it just became a full-time, it became a double full-time job. That's the story. It's very long. You're going to have to cut it down. But that <laughs> no, was no. it. Everyone's going to be super interested. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, it, it was exciting. It was exciting. And again, and I will be, again, just very honest about this. During these times, um, there are people, you know, I put it on Facebook and people liked it, liked it, liked it. But I didn't get a lot of phone calls necessarily from folks. And it felt, I felt very alone. And I also felt weirdly undeserving. And I felt like, um, am I going to be shunned because of this? Like, are people not going to want, am I the wrong choice? And I remember reading, like, reviews, uh, or reading, like, Twitter afterwards, which, like, at one point, and people were like, oh, I wish this had won, and I wish this had won, and I'm salty about this. Mm -hmm. Some book should have won. Read it, that, and you're just like, okay. Now, other things were happening, too. My team, the Cubs, which I've been a fan of because I lived in Iowa and I had to choose between them and the, State, you know, and, the, and the Cardinals, I chose the Cubs, had not won a World Series for a very long time. And they won and that year, which was incredible. Yeah. And Trump had just been elected. Oh. And so what I was also spending a, oh. a, a great yeah. deal of time, Wendy and I were literally planning out every day different marches we were going to yeah. and different organizations that we were taking part in. That's right. And there were some of us were like, oh my God, like we were part of organizations that yeah. had just just sprung together in order to create billboards. Mm -hmm. Like we were going to put billboards in all of these different places, like denouncing the stuff that he was already doing. We were, we were going down to, you know, prep, prepping for DC, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the various marches. Uh, when he was at JFK marching, like we were supposed to go to Cuba and we canceled that trip to be here with people, with the people. Like it was just so many things were in upheaval. It felt, I felt unmoored. I felt unmoored as a human being. I felt like a lot of people around me were unmoored. I felt undeserving and totally deserving. I felt incredible love and delight for uh, Daniel and how his life was going to change and what that book meant. Um, I, I couldn't, it was going to be taught in schools and what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, like a deep consternation, a deep fear, a loathing for the kind of, like for, for the people that we were as, as, as Daniel would say, United Statesians. Um, and uh, a just, yeah, a real deep fear of what was coming. Like you just sensed it. Like I was just thinking um, of the poem you wrote in your most recent collection, Operating systems, the yeah. line ethos, like, um, America, I can't keep you. Here, I'll yeah. read that. 
Yeah, I'll read that please, real quick. Yes. Just the just yeah. the beginning of that. America, more I can't, I know, survive you, nor exist within you now without resistance. We can work to reconfigure and revive this bond and rejoice or revivisect your callous water view, reviewing each vicious act captured on video. I can't keep you or keep you kept. I can enclose you closely in mind, but not altogether clearly. So, um, I mean, just to talk a little bit about this poem and a little bit about this book. Uh, in this book, there's a lot of, this is the, the fifth book of autobiomythographies, and those are, an autobiomythography for me is um, places where I can start from one aspect of myself and work outward, mm -hmm. and sometimes they're very revealing to me in what I write, and sometimes I work from a place of something that's already revealed and work outward. So I can work into different characters and different places and meanings, or I can work toward my interiority. And this book, um, which is Operating Systems, is a 10 year, 10 to 12 year effort, really, of, uh, of me kind of examining my place uh, in society. And ethos is very much um, a self-interrogation of myself as a, as a white male in the United States and what that means. Um, and searching for blind spots and walking through and just this, again, interrogation and investigation um, and this book has a lot of personal stuff in it I have poems which I'll read later uh, I'll read one about my mother um, raising three kids uh, on welfare I'll read a poem about my brother who went I, there's two poems in, in here about my brother one of my brothers Tony who, who's been to prison twice and he's in prison now and he will be for a while so I'll read one of those poems but um, some of them are very deeply personal, mm -hmm. um, and ethos is trying to wrap my head around one particular aspect of, of myself and what it means from one aspect of community, that is, mm -hmm. for myself and where I kind of fit into uh, these various communities. Personal is very connected to the political, that's something sure. we always said, and so as a result, I, like when I was reading this collection, I was thinking about activism how a lot of it is connected to our personal experiences mm -hmm. and what we write about. Like, I remember Jane, the poet Jane Hirschfield, mm -hmm. who uses a lot of nature imagery in her work, um, was involved with the Science March, mm -hmm. um, doing workshops for that um, when that was happening after Trump was elected. And then there's the whole image of, like, Walt Whitman, mm -hmm. um, even though he's super racist, this idea of, like, the American voice and like the poet as like the keeper of as a keeper of American identity mm. and like the fragmenting of it and in a time it's interesting to think yeah. of the American voice or as a singular yeah. American identity I don't think yeah. anybody now thinks of those no, things in that exactly. way even canonization of anything there's not a single canon there's yeah. a, and to talk into that a little bit more like there's not a community there's not a literary community yeah. there's not a poetry community um, there's many communities mm -hmm. I mean if you walk if, if you go to Brooklyn if you go to any reading you'll find different communities yeah. and some are centered around you know uh, people come together into various communities for at different times and in different ways so you'll have uh, people center in, in the same way they they don't they're not one identity you know, people don't follow. We're not. We're not a singular identity. We're many different things and many different facets. And so we find our different communities, mm -hmm. and we can go there when we want. Um, but it doesn't have to define 
every part, every aspect of who we are. Mm -hmm. Just like we don't have to, uh, I was reading this interview with Marlon James that was really wonderful and he talks about like he didn't have to, and he was glad he didn't have to, differentiate between um, various types of reading. Right, so that he would like uh, comic books and read with read those with the same kind of love as he would a so-called literary novel or a romance or anything else. It was just good writing, and yeah. that the differences between high and low can kind of collapse yeah. when you're looking into uh, when when you, when you're when you're reading with real pleasure. Um, when you're constantly kind of reading for real pleasure mm -hmm. and that you come to reading as a kind of exercise and you learn about different people in different communities and you're able to kind of like uh, be brought into those places, which is the wonderful thing about reading and literature or just reading in general, yeah. right? That you can just be, that anything can be literature. Yeah. Literature actually is in its own camp that you find, you, you, you find literature yeah. in whatever it is you're reading, you're right? A lot of people have started calling this literary activism when in fact historically the best books, um, the best poetry have always been subversive. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think? It, I mean, it's not a new genre. It's always been there. Sure. So I don't understand why um, literary activism mm -hmm. has to be this term that's given to this group of people who want to change things or yeah. who, want to, who want more inclusion. It's, no, no, absolutely. And the truth is I actually have... It doesn't bother everybody, but it, it, it does kind of bother me at times. Um, like, to say, I think that act, like literary activism, I think that literature is part of life, right? That one, being me, shouldn't live through, uh, shouldn't only be activists in their writing. That, uh, that, that, that writing is part of my waking life, and mm -hmm. therefore, like, politics is part of my waking life, and mm -hmm. sex is part of my waking life, and all of these things are part of my, my living life in terms, and, and also my interiority, mm -hmm. right? They're all tangled together. Yeah, so, so literature is, or writing is part of my literary activism, but so is my activism, so is my living. Mm -hmm. Those things are not separate in, 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 in my world. Like, writing is not different from living. That I actually do think uh, of myself as kind of a terrible human being in lots of different ways. Oh my but, God. but this is what I do. I will just tell you this. I think that it's important. I, I do something that tries to, that helps me be a better person, I think. Uh, I do pretend that I'm living in a kind of zero sum game, that um, because of the amount of uh, waste that I produce, the amount of water that I use, all the things that I do, all my phones and everything else that I'm a part of, being an American and what that means, what that means to people in foreign countries because of our military and the part that I'm, and because I'm, I'm part of that process. And that if I'm not out there constantly um, engaging with ways that can stop this, which I'm not, I am at times, but I'm not constantly doing this, that I have to try to do something to better myself within various communities that I'm part of. And so one of the things that I think of is, in terms of the zero sum game is that right now there's this level and it's, I'm either a, I'm either a plus in this world and I'm bringing better to it or I'm just taking more from it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a negative. And I think that we just start off as a negative in this way. And so what I try to do to bring back the positive is do things within the community, which is really part of why I started the Brooklyn Artists Helping um, uh, program, which is what that is, is my wife and I, in, starting in 2013, started handing out uh, sleeping bags to homeless people. This is how it started off. I was walking through the city in the middle of the night. It was like, it was midnight. It was uh, March. It was like 10 degrees or so. 
and I saw this other human being on the street under a blanket. Um, I only think they had shoes on. And I was thinking, oh my, and I was bundled up and it was windy. And I was thinking, this person's going to die here. Like, what the fuck is happening? Uh, this is terrible. Like, and I see people all the side the times asking for money. Um, and, and I give when I can or when I feel the need to, uh, um, to be honest. And sometimes ignore people, uh, to be honest as well. And I, that's how I was living. And I was like, okay. There is no way you can help every single human being on the planet. There's not. There's not. Um, but I think you can help people right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the... Um, it's, it's being part of the, uh, a larger community, a local larger community. So these people living on the streets in New York, they're part of our community. They are. And so we try, we have to do something for them. Um, and so what I did, what I felt like I could do immediately was get people sleeping bags. Um, something that can warm them up. And so I wrote a bunch of companies. I went right home that night and I wrote a bunch of companies asking for free sleeping bags, saying, listen, this is what I'm going to do. Um, you, can, you can look me up. I'm not a charlatan. I'm not going to steal your money. I'm not going to steal your sleeping bag and sell them on eBay. Like, um, here's all of my credentials. Here's my Facebook page. You can come and attack me if I do. Um, but I want to be able to do something. I want to be able to give back. And my wife, honestly, is just one of the most giving people on the planet. And so she was already working once a, once a week for Coalition for the Homeless, handing out food, which we just took my mother to do last week. And she does that weekly or biweekly. Um, I had worked for a brief time because being near people that actually do good things makes you want to do good things. My wife is just doing all of this stuff. I started, um, I started working in housing works on Wednesdays, uh, which helps people with HIV AIDS. Um, Great it helps organization. Them. Yeah. It's just a fantastic organization. Mm -hmm. So I was helping them out in, at the bookstore. Um, and so I felt like giving three to four hours a week isn't too much to ask from myself. And, Long story short, this place, Ledge Sports in Utah, came through and sold us uh, bags at cost that they had shipped in from China. And we uh, started handing out 100 sleeping bags every year. And we've been doing that since. And then it kind of snowballed into other things. We felt that whenever we traveled to a different community, if we went on a vacation to Spain, mm. that what we would do, we would do something while we were there. If we went to, if we went on an extended like two week vacation out to LA or something like that, we would put in time there because we were part of that community for a short period of time and that community needed something from us as, mm -hmm. uh, as people visiting. And so we would uh, start to help people out in any way we can, especially with, with shelters. And every year at AWP, the big writers conference, what we do now is we collect toiletries from everybody staying in hotels and we ask them over that four, four day period to bring it to us. And then at the end, we take it down to uh, shelters, normally for uh, the victims of abuse, women and children, um, and, hand, and, and hand those over. And people are, have been wonderful with the, their donations. So Brooklyn Artists Helping really is just about being part of this larger community because of just there's levels to community like uh, there's the personal community of your friends there's writing communities of various writing communities there's the larger community out here people that are on your streets and your neighbors and and and, and it's it's important to kind of for me to um to be part of that to mm -hmm. give back into that because i feel like i've received a lot from 
from these communities myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really am trying to, I just want to reach zero again. I feel like I'm such in a pit <laughs> as a human being, oh, no. and that I'm just trying to reach zero, and if I can do that, then I would have done something. Mm -hmm. And the first one, let's see if there's anything in now. Yeah, the one, th the one thing that I normally tell people is uh, that Wendy and I hand out, or we're handing out uh, sleeping bags of homeless people. What we decided to do now, because what was happening was the sleeping bags were being thrown away because they're very heavy. These are people that like they need to travel light for the most part. Mm -hmm. Not all of them have any kind of basket or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, they're always asking for uh, specifically like bags to keep stuff in. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing now um, is I just ordered backpacks mm -hmm. and thick wool blankets, wool socks, um, and some toiletries and we're just filling the backpacks because they can just walk around with that and if they get other stuff other blankets or stuff like this and there are other groups you'll run into occasionally that are out there feeding them and 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 uh bringing them backpacks as well now um so we just wanted to give them something to to uh hang on to um that they wouldn't throw away that could actually help them but uh that's the one thing you need to know is that we were handing out backpacks this is what i normally tell people that um, so this is Cheerios. <clears throat> We're sharing stories tonight after maybe too many drinks, but among friends mostly. And with some good jokes behind us, we move into a new space of realness and the problems our world is facing. And all the good communication we are having in our lives, making sure some miseducated others understand the ways they are wrong, wrong, wrong. And I am cornered by my own adamacy and by the questions of a stranger into, telling of a, into the telling of a story and in soon relating why to complicate this image of me, wine glass in hand, how my mother raised three kids alone on weekdays on $100 a month and refused food stamps for as long as she could out of what I mistook as pride only. Until one morning she collapsed weeping at the table over the last packet of dehydrated macaroni and cheese and crumbs of Cheerios collected, collecting in the hip of a plastic bag and admitted without words some final terrible loss before her stunned and unsure children. And this guy suddenly beside me nods and says, whatever doesn't kill you. And I'm remembering this conversation with more than a little guilt on the corner of 76th and Lexington at 2 a.m., rousing a young, seemingly newly homeless woman out from under her hard stare over leveled kneecaps, as behind her the others sleep on, layered in thin blankets and broke-back corrugated cardboard in this seven-degree night of perfect chill, this solid block of death. And I'm offering her a sleeping bag, which she will refuse. Which she will refuse? And I will ask again, please, it's only going to get worse. And she will refuse with a look I'll never forget because it showed me who I was to her in no uncertain terms, ending with a final exhalation that was a curse on this, the coldest night of our year. Realizing why I grew so angry so quickly and turned upon this stranger in the once friendly apartment announcing whatever doesn't kill you kills you motherfucker that you is fucking dead motherfucker Knowing yes, this isn't always true But I in that moment was already someone's child again my fists on the table watching this woman I love more than breathing her sobbing tenor stirring me to rage 
take a beating for me as she collapses into the unforgivable arms of another's service. Okay. And I think that's a, that's a lovely end to the, yeah. to the podcast. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for the, uh, for the opportunity and uh, for the great questions and uh, companionship. Thanks. Thank you. Um, thank you for joining the Columbia Journal for today's episode. You can learn more about Joe Pan and his editorial projects at either JoePan.com, BrooklynArtsPress.com, or AugreeBooks.com. Stay tuned for more announcements from the Columbia Journal team. Visit us online at ColumbiaJournal.org.